Welcome to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. My name's Tammy Simon. I'm the founder of Sounds True, and I'd love to take a moment to introduce you to the new Sounds True Foundation. The Sounds True Foundation is dedicated to creating a wiser and kinder world by making transformational education widely available. We want everyone to have access to transformational tools such as mindfulness, emotional awareness, and self-compassion, regardless of financial, social, or physical challenges. The Sounds True Foundation is a nonprofit dedicated to providing these transformational tools to communities in need, including at-risk youth, prisoners, veterans, and those in developing countries. If you'd like to learn more or feel inspired to become a supporter, please visit SoundsTrueFoundation.org. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Terry Cole. Terry is a licensed psychotherapist and global leading expert in personal empowerment. For two decades, Terry has worked with some of the world's most well-known personalities, from international pop stars to Fortune 500 CEOs. She has a gift for making complex psychological concepts accessible and then actionable. With Sounds True, Terry Cole is the author of a new book, a comprehensive, beautifully created book. It's called Boundary Boss, the essential guide to talk true, be seen, and finally live free. It might sound like having healthy boundaries is a good psychological skill to have, but I have to say, listening to Terry on becoming a boundary boss helped me appreciate how absolutely critical this skill is and how, in some ways, I think it might very well be the apex of how we as humans can learn to put truth and truth-telling at the very center of our lives, which is something I value so much. Here's my conversation with Terry Cole, talking true on being a boundary boss. Terry, as someone who's been a psychotherapist and empowerment expert for many years, how did it become apparent to you that the topic of healthy boundaries being a boundary boss, as you put it, was going to be the topic that you would focus your big book in the world on. How did that become clear to you? Yep, that's the topic. Well, I think part of it is that, you know, you you most teach what you most need to learn. And so it was a combination of my personal experience of having a lot of painful experiences that were directly connected to not even knowing what boundaries were, um, being a people pleaser, having the disease to please, a lot of outside validation. And then when I became a psychotherapist, which was sort of later, it was like a second career, I just started seeing all of these presenting problems. So it may have been someone not getting paid what they were worth or having conflict in their love relationship or not being able to assert themselves with their family of origin. But all of those things, I could connect connect the dots backwards to this lack of knowledge around the right to have personal boundaries, the ability to speak those boundaries, to establish those boundaries, to enforce those boundaries. And I was like, wow, this is an epidemic. Like, it's not just me and my friends and people I've seen. Once I was a therapist for, I'd say, at least the first 10 years, I was like, this is a whole thing. And I I kept creating like little handouts for my clients, like, well, this will help. And maybe these are some things that you could say that might be assertive and might be truthful and whatever. And that started just taking shape after many years. In the book, Boundary Boss, you talk about your own, quote, boundary boot camp, unquote, that happened in your early 30s (laughs) when your father died and also when you received a cancer diagnosis. What was that boundary boot camp? What happened? Well, it became apparent to me when when major things happen in life, catastrophes, um, things that shake up the normal way we do business, right? 
there was an opportunity, but there was also, the, it was obvious where I was having difficulty asserting myself. So like with the, you know, being a cancer virgin, not really asserting myself in a medical way, not being knowledgeable, sort of being like, you know, I think back and I kind of can't believe it was me, but it was, you know, thinking like the doctors know, um, I didn't even, you know, didn't really, I did get a second opinion, but what ended up my experience was it was very difficult for me to assert myself with the first surgeon. And I ended up having to have the same surgery again. And, and I do see it as directly related to me not asserting myself, not getting my, my questions answered, feeling rushed to make a decision. And that was a really painful, obviously, and a long drawn out process of not knowing, even in my early 30s, not knowing my um, boundary bill of rights, as I call it. Like, what are my rights, even if the person is a surgeon, and a doctor, and very well known at what they do, I still have the right to have my questions answered, to have what I think considered. But I didn't do that. So that was one that was very painful because my gut instinct was telling me to assert myself. And I didn't, and I ended up having, the, ha having to have the same surgery twice. So that was one thing. And then with, you know, with my father's death as well, I had actually before about six months before my father passed, I went through an experience where I really I had a choice to either assert myself or not. And it was boundary boot camp in that I did assert myself with the help of my therapist and really had a profound shift in my relationship with my father at that time. So he was someone who was uh, I was afraid of, so were all my sisters, so was my mother. Um, and I went into my therapist, and I was, you know, out of the house for many years. I was in my early 30s. And I went into my therapist's office, and I said, hey, I'm actually, I've decided I'm not going to invite my father to my grad school graduation. So I was becoming a psychotherapist. And she said, um, okay, can I ask you why? And I said, well, he won't come. That's why. And she's like, okay, but let's ask a different question. Do you want to invite him? And I, which was a different question than saying, did I want him there? But did I want to invite him? And I was like, of course, he's my father, you know? And she was like, okay. So why, I want you to understand that if you want to invite him, <laughs> you should invite him, whether you think he will come or not. You're blurring the boundaries between your side of the street and his side of the street. Your healing will come from asserting your true desire, your preference. It's not about what your father does, which actually really blew my mind. So what ended up happening is she gave this to me as an assignment. I was seeing him. I would go to Florida once a year to see him. And she said, okay, I want you to invite your father to your graduation. Now, you know, I'm coachable, if nothing else. And I was like, I have to do this. So it's the last day. I still have not asked him. I'm packing. He's like, okay, we need to leave at the airport. I was like, Okay, well, I have between now and the airport because I cannot go back to New York and tell Ruth I didn't do it. And we're driving. And I said, uh, hey, Dad. He was like, yeah. I was like, hey, um, I got an extra ticket to the graduation in May. Um, you know, th that's it. So if, if you want it type of a thing. And he was like, uh, Tara, I really can't because he really, really hated New York. He worked there for years, too stressful. Um, and I was like, it's okay. I said, I said, no problem. And then he said something really odd. He said, oh, here comes the guilt. And I was like, Are you kidding? I haven't guilted you a day in my life. I don't even know what that means. But it opened up this dialogue where I was able to say, dad, it's not about guilt. It's about that you are my only father and you matter. Our connection matters. I can absolutely, as a grown adult, accept it if it's too much. But I wanted you to know that nobody can replace you, right? Like, because my, my mother would be there, my sisters. I was like, but you're the only you, you know? And he was like, okay. So not, not much else on that topic, but what shifted between us? When we hugged goodbye, it was like, he hugged longer than he normally would, right? And, it, and he just kind of held on. And then for those six months, I started getting like a card with his like little scrawly handwriting that just said, love dad, which was very out of character. He would normally send me a note about my retirement account. 
than he thought that I should be doing. He was very dutiful in that type of a way. So it was very interesting to just get a note being like, kind of like thinking of you, even though he would never say anything more on the inside in his handwriting other than love dad. And we opened up this dialogue, started having phone calls on Sundays. And I truly believe that all of this happened from having the courage to simply ask for what I wanted with the full-blown boundary possibility to accept someone else's no. And my father actually died very suddenly six months after that trip. He just died of a massive heart attack. He was quite young. And I was so grateful that I had that courage in that moment. But that really shifted something for me because I learned that it really wasn't about controlling other people, manipulating other people, getting them to do what we want. And if we can't, then we shouldn't. It was about being truthful and asserting my authentic self, even though I was afraid. Now, the title of your book, Terry, is Boundary Boss. It's such a great title. As I was preparing for this podcast, I just was walking around and being, you know, boundary boss, boundary boss, boundary boss. Yeah. Okay. What is a boundary boss? Describe it. Put it in action for us. Show us this person who's acting and speaking and conducting themselves and feels inside like a boundary boss. What it means to be a boundary boss is that you know what your preferences, your desires, your limits, and your deal breakers are. You know who you are. But in your relationships, you know what those things are, and you have the ability to clearly communicate them. So that it's you are true to yourself as a boundary boss. And the misconception is that to be a boundary boss, you got to be hard. You got to be fighting. You're like confronting people. You're always saying no. Like, isn't that a boundary boss? And no, because when you really learn this skill, which is what it is, you can always do it if you so choose with kindness. You can always do it with ease and with grace and with love when appropriate. So it's knowing who you are and having the courage to allow the people in your life to also know who you are, to take up space. A boundary boss is someone who loves themselves, who knows that prioritizing your preferences, your desires, knowing your deal breakers, that is not being selfish. Who knows that self-care, like legitimate self-care is not selfish. So there's a whole mental health aspect to this, but it's really about the way we interact in our relationships and in the world that comes from a place of who you are, knowing that you are ever evolving. So it's accepting where you are right now too, with whatever you do and don't know about boundaries, you're in the exact right place, in the exact right moment in time to hear about this book, to pick up this book, to learn this process. It is never too late. Now, you say that being a boundary boss is a skill. And I noticed when you said that it's a skill, I thought, oh, that's good. That that's, means it's learnable. It's something I can develop. When you were describing the qualities of feeling and acting like a boundary boss, it felt a little bit more like some awesome, not necessarily attainable <laughs> goal, but if it's a skill, oh, okay. So help me understand kind of step by step, what are the components of this skill? So part of it, the, the book itself and what I've been teaching for the past two and a half decades is based on what I've created, which are the five pillars of self-mastery. So visualize it like the first pillar, pillar is self-awareness. So this is knowing, um, just being aware. How am I interacting in the world? What am I doing? Because you can't change anything you are unaware of. And then we move into self-knowledge. And the steps I, I give you, you know, in, in the book itself, I give you tons of strategies and tips and small exercises. And in each chapter, you'll see that I bring everything. I teach you something. And then there's something called back to you. 
So the reader now takes this thing we just learned and goes, okay, now I'm like, this is how we do it in your life. Answer these questions, get your answers. Because of course, I am nobody's guru, obviously, and I don't have your answers or anyone's answers, but I definitely know where your answers are. I'm a damn good GPS to get you to where that is. So first we have self-awareness, then we move into self-knowledge. So we do a lot of um, taking inventories. We do a lot of sitting down because self-knowledge, when you talk about becoming an expert on anything, if you wanted to be an expert in finance, you would learn from someone. This process of becoming a boundary boss is you becoming an expert on you and your life experiences and all of the things that have come together to create where you are right now and the way that you relate to and express your boundaries, like your boundary style. So self-knowledge, which is we go into the basement, as I call it, which is the unconscious of your mind. But don't worry, I've got like a little miner's lamp and I'm holding your hand. You're never alone throughout this entire process. And everything is very small, doable steps. So we have to, we need information though, right? We need to know what happened. I teach you how to connect what happened in the past to what might be happening right now in your life that you might not want to be happening right now in your life. We move into awareness, knowledge, and then we have the third pillar, which is acceptance. So self-acceptance, not just accepting yourself. It's really accepting your life experiences and the things you got in childhood and the things you didn't get in childhood. Like, again, we can't come from a place of denial or repression of this information and fix what we want to fix to change or transform the things we want to change. Um, the fourth pillar, which I find is probably the most challenging, is self-compassion. Because I find that the women in my crew in particular are incredibly compassionate, a lot of empaths, highly sensitive people, very compassionate of others. And somehow when it comes to themselves, they're like, I should know this. I shouldn't be so weak. I don't want to blame my parents. Why? It was so long ago. I should be over it. It happened four decades ago, right? There's all of these ways to not treat ourselves compassionately. So everything that we do throughout this process of becoming a boundary boss, is we are meeting ourselves with compassion, with understanding, with acceptance, because it's that's really the only way that we can heal or transform or change what needs to be changed. We can't be mean enough to ourselves to get these skills. It's through self-love that they will come. And then the fifth pillar is self-mastery, which encompasses self-love and self-celebration. And self-mastery means any situation that you find yourself in in your life, you're like, I'm okay. I may not know exactly what to do, but I know how to buy time. I know how to create space. I know how to say no. I know how to not give an Insta or, or auto yes. So all of these things from communication to your childhood experiences to um, asserting boundaries, then we actually within the book, we need to learn the actual language of boundaries. So that is exactly like learning any other language. You would never think that you should just be fluent in another language and like, what's wrong with you that you don't know it if nobody taught it to you. So that's the way that we approach the actual language. And we approach different people differently. Because folks in our life, and you, Tammy, probably can think, huh, have you ever known someone who you might consider a boundary bully, let's say? Right. Who hasn't? But a lot of times we think that people are pushy or kind of a boundary bully. But the way that I make the distinction within my practice and within the book is we have people who are boundary first timers. So even if they are more assertive than you are, if you've never spoken truthfully about your feelings, your thoughts, if you've never made a request, right? A, a simple boundary requ request, we call it in the book, then we can't put them in the category of being a boundary bully because we really don't know how they're going to respond 
when you make a simple boundary request. And what I have found by teaching this, because before I created the book, I actually beta tested it for five years in a course to see what sticks, what works, what's the most efficient way to do something, what's the fastest way to A to B, what can go, because it's not really producing what I wanted, um, because I wanted to try it in real life. So that was the process of beta testing with the course to move it into really just keeping the, hoping and knowing that the cream would rise to the top if I had more experiences. So that is what would end up in the book because you cannot have, you can't all go in the book because there is not a book that is long enough. So the mindset is that this process is like learning a language. And I want to get much more into the language of boundaries. But before we do, you said uh, something really important in terms of the whole process of self-mastery and the importance of self-knowledge and having the self-knowledge of what happened in our past and understanding how that's formed us today. You write about it as discovering your boundary blueprint. And I'm wondering if you can give some examples of maybe some classic boundary blueprints that happened for people early in their life that then led to their current behavior around boundaries and starting to help people make those connections. Yep, I sure can. Think about your folks. Like part of what we do in the boundary blueprint is you think about your family of origin. It could be, I just call them your parental impactors because it could be any any organization of humans, but the adults in your life, the way that they interacted. So if you had... Um, let's say, um, a mother maternal impactor who was a pleaser, and that is the way they interacted in their relationship, that's not someone who's teaching you, right? You're learning that, like, oh, this is what love is. When I'm in a love relationship, I say yes, even when I mean want to say no. I do things that I don't want to do simply because it makes the other person happy, which is fine to do if there's mutuality there, but a lot of times there's not. And what is that create. We end up having these repeating boundary realities. And then we find ourselves in similar situations in our adult relationships. And what does that lead to? Let's say that example of a mom who was a pushover, who said yes, 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 but really wanted to say no, who overgave, overfelt, overfunctioned, let's say, ends up feeling a particular way in life, which is un underappreciated angry, bitter. And so without some intervention, we will most likely repeat the modeled behavior in our childhood, even when we say we won't, right? Have you ever been like, I will never have that bickering marriage that my parents have. And if you don't do something to have some kind of an intervention to not do that, you will find yourself doing that. And that's not according to me, that's according to Freud, but it's true. <laughs> Now, let's say someone's trying to sniff out right now in their own experience, how does my current approach to boundaries connect to my early parental impactors? I like that uh, phrase that you used. Where would you point them to start looking? Where, where can they start sniffing for clues? The first thing is, and we do this right, right within the book, you're actually filling out your own very unique. Um, blueprint by answering these questions, just start thinking about how were the boundaries within your family, meaning how it either enmeshed or separate was your family system? Was it an open system where lots of people could come in and out? Or was it more of a closed system where, you know, some families, nobody can come in and out, right? You, you know, the, the friend who couldn't have friends over, and then you have the friend who you were constantly sleeping over that friend's house. So we look and go, oh, those are all representative of a particular kind of um, a way of relating to boundaries. So if you're in a family system that was very enmeshed and everyone knew what was going on in everyone else's life and everyone talked about everyone, were you allowed to have privacy? Were you not? Could you have a private phone call? Or like in my husband's life, he had the one kitchen in the, in the house right, was in the kitchen and the cord was two inches long, so there was no private conversation ever. Those are all ways that you start to look at, huh, this is how my boundary blueprint came about. How was it in your circle? 
your culture, your country. Um, if you look at, let's look at like, let's say sexual boundaries. If you came from a very repressed culture, there would be an expectation to not be sexual until a certain point in your life. And some cultures, even now, get being sexual before marriage is considered a terrible thing. Those are also boundaries. So if you look at your family of origin, was there respect for, how, were you allowed to have a different way of thinking about things? Or was it more group think that we all have to be on the same page? Um, were you allowed to differentiate in any other way? Were people allowed to take your things? Did you have your own room? And, and we go through, I go through all of these things in the book, but there's all different kinds of boundaries. So right now, when we're talking about family stuff, we talk about all of them, but really emotional boundaries, let's just say. Like, how do we relate to the other people? How did you problem solve? How did you talk to each other? Those are emotional boundaries. Were people screaming at each other? That's a boundary violation. Was there no conversation when someone was mad? Did someone withdraw in anger? That's a dysfunctional boundary response. Okay. Now, you know, I told you how uh, happy I was strutting around the house, just saying the words boundary boss. But uh, the question that was also happening inside is I was trying to think through, how good am I actually with boundaries, really? Like, I want to be a boundary boss, but I don't think I am, truth be told. So if somebody's asking that question of themselves, and they're trying to look at their life right now, and they're trying to assess like, huh, how good am I actually? What guidelines would you give them for coming up with that truthful assessment? Well, how, how often do you say yes when you really wanna say no? Where in your life and in your relationships are you overgiving, overdoing, um, twisting yourself up into a pretzel sort of, or, or inconveniencing yourself? for others who might not even be high priority people in your life. So that that's a beginning. You can also always know if a need is not getting met, which means there's some kind of boundary dysfunction happening, by checking in with how you feel. Think about a friendship, think about a relationship or your love relationship. Are you resentful? Do you feel underappreciated? Do you feel like that person should be doing more for you, or there's not enough mutuality. So I always look for the the um, anger. Like if you're kind of pissed, we can then take the anger, how you feel, and connect those dots backwards to find some kind of injury or some interaction or some place where you are not talking true, not sharing the truth about what you want with that person. So it's really about your level of satisfaction, I think. And how known do you feel? Like, do the people in your life, do you tell the truth about how you feel? And I don't mean all the people, because not all the people should be getting your truth truth, right? Like our, our heart truth is reserved for the people in our VIP section, as I call it, right? Our front row, our, our important people. So those are a few ways of looking at um, how often do you want to say something? Even if you're in a conversation with other people at work, let's say, but you don't speak up, or you might have disordered boundaries in a different way, and you might speak up so much that you don't let anyone else talk, and that's a different kind of boundary dysfunction. But your level of satisfaction is really the best litmus test to see where you're at, because if you're angry, if you're frustrated often, then I promise you, you have disordered boundaries. You talk about three different kinds of boundaries that it's possible that our boundaries are porous, rigid, or healthy. So mm -hmm. as we're looking inward during this conversation, how would we know if our boundaries are on the porous or rigid side? Well, porous means very malleable, right? They're, they're, they're sort of too loose, let's say. And that would be more, um, those of you who've taken the, the boundary quiz, you know, we have different, there's like uh, seven different things that you could sort of be. That's more of the chameleon, the pushover, 
the peacekeeper. So if you sort of abandon yourself to avoid conflict, that, that if you can't, you want to avoid conflict, even if it's not your conflict, you might be diffusing conflict for other people. That, that says that there's your boundaries are more porous. This le leans itself towards more codependency type of relationships. Um, if you're more rigid, you might be more of um more like my way or the highway. You could be a great leader, but you also might be a little insensitive to others. You could be kind of bossy. You could be not as sensitive to other people's stuff. Um, that would be considered more rigid or rigid boundaries can also express themselves more like the loner where deep emotional, messy emotional stuff is like not your thing. So to not deal with that, you may remove yourself, right? You may just be like, okay, if it gets complicated, you may disappear. You might be the person who's kind of ghosting other people emotionally. So that is, you know, and if we're doing it super simply, we would say that rigid boundaries are too firm. So if we were going to boil it down to real simple, and as human beings, we're a little more complicated than this, we would say that rigid boundaries are too firm, porous boundaries are too loose. So what is it that we're seeking? We would like to be somewhere in the middle of those things and have healthy boundaries, meaning that we they're appropriately flexible, right? We can take context into account if something is going on. If your friend asks you to go to a concert, but you hate outside concerts, you don't like that music, and you you can say no. And if your friend says, but actually I would love it if you came because I really like this person and I really need a wing lady, a, a wing woman to come with me. That's context and you may say, oh, well that's a different story. It's not about the concert, it's about you and you can make that different choice. So I think that the healthy boundaries means we trust our own opinion, we know what we think. We're not afraid to say what that is. And again, imagine this all being done with ease and grace. Because if you're really masterful at something, there's almost never a need to do it with harshness. There's almost never a need to be unkind. There really isn't. When you master this, you can do it all with kindness. But it's the truth about how you feel. And for those who are interested, you can go to boundaryquiz.com and take the quiz that Terry's referring to. Now, you mentioned, yeah, when you're really masterful, you can do this with ease and grace. And I had a moment of like, yeah, really? Okay, so why is this so hard, Terry? Why <laughs> is this so hard for so many of us? Well... I can, there's so many reasons, but let's just start with the, the most prevalent, which is that we were, most of us, raised and praised to be self-abandoning codependents in life. This is what a good girl did. What? Smile. Turn that frown around. Where's my happy girl? Nobody was like, I care about how you feel most of the time, <laughs> right? This was what, what is, you know, uh, if we're looking at traditional gender roles, we were raised to be the bridgers, the assuagers, the soothers of life. So, and, and it was like the highest compliment, right? Being nice was like the highest virtue of all virtues, but it got became corrupted because what we learned is that it's better to be nice than to be honest, quote unquote. And then of course, truthfully, is that really being nice? Obviously not. <laughs> if you're saying yes, when you want to say no, but we didn't learn that. And so many of us have been just trained to like automatically self-abandon. Automatically, we are accommodating, right? This this auto accommodation of other people in situations and all of those things set you up to be a boundary disaster, not a boundary master, because it's basically saying it doesn't matter how you feel and what you think. It matters what other people think of you. It matters that people think you're nice. How many times do clients say to me, I just don't want them to think blah, blah, blah. I'm like, listen, dude, we can only worry about what you think. What they think is their side of the street. But we were raised to worry about what everybody thinks and make sure everyone is happy. So 
it is a whole process that requires a certain amount of intention and commitment to like, I want this to be different. Like we can't be sleeping in life. We can't be on automatic pilot and be like, but I'm going to suddenly have amazing, you know, this amazing skill set because automatic pilot is the old thing. And it's hard because nobody taught us. No, you, you mentioned that one of the things we can do if we want to see where we might have, I think uh, one of the, your phrases is disordered boundaries, but I w- mm-hmm. might just say boundaries that aren't so great, something like that is look at our relationships and see where we're not satisfied. And that's a good feedback for us. And in the book, you have this great quote. You say, be the change you want to see in relationships. And you're, uh, you know, referring to the be the change quote that so many people use uh, from Mahatma Gandhi to talk about being the change we want in the world, and then be the change you want to see in relationships. And that really stuck with me because as I was surveying and thinking of various friendships in my life, and even some family relationships, and even aspects of my intimate relationship, truth be told, that aren't where I necessarily 100% want them to be, then I thought, oh, Tammy, be the change you want to see in relationships. And that that really inspired me. And when it comes to speaking the language of boundaries, I wonder if you could give us some examples of that, of how you've helped people be the change they want to be in relationships using this communication skill. Well, the first thing you're going to want to do, everyone wants to in the beginning when they're like, wow, everything's going to change. I cannot wait to get a bullhorn and tell everybody, people, we need to talk. <laughs> Everything is going to be different now. There's a new boundary sheriff in town, literally, because we're, it's so anxiety provoking to even think about changing our boundary dances that we can't wait to like warn the people, but we won't warn the people. Because the most profound changes, and to be the change you want to see in your relationships, is that that is one small shift at a time within yourself. So every time you want to focus out on what your person should be doing differently, on what this one should be doing differently, and if my boss just wasn't a big jerk, it would all be fine, we're going to focus in and really get clear, what is my 50% of this interaction? What if I simply asked for what I wanted? What if I didn't write a whole dissertation around how they should already know it, or I mentioned it once in 1978, and I can't believe they didn't remember? What if we just got healthy enough to say, hey, I'd like to make a simple request that you not leave your wet towel on the wood floor, as I've asked you a bunch of times, (laughs) but I'm going to ask you again, right? That is a simple request. Every request is simple right? Whether they do it or not. So instead of looking out, part of it is we're going to look in. Very good. And you have a a section towards the back of the book, scripts for assorted boundary challenges. (laughs) And I thought this was so helpful. And we won't be able, obviously, to give lots of examples. But I wonder if you can give some examples in terms of starting, you know, this ease of communicating our simple requests, the language of of boundaries. So give us some good examples of this. Sure, sure. So let's say you're having a conversation with someone who is interrupting you. You're telling a story, but we we know who these people are. So so these are boundary, uh, you know, conversational boundary situations. In the past, let's say that you let them interrupt you, but you're you're hurt. You're, it stings. You feel a little mm, inside. You're like, wow, they're not even listening to my story. Instead of doing that, you can. I, I like the one finger method because it's not super aggressive, but we hold up one finger. Like if you were to say to someone one moment, you would hold up one finger. Say, oh, hey, I would really appreciate it if you could let me finish my story before telling yours, And but then I'm all ears for yours. Sometimes I'll say to someone, please let me finish my thought because I promise you if I don't, I will forget it. Like I I will use humor. Um, But I am pointing out that they have interrupted. So that's one sort of easy way. Um, Let's say you have a friend who every time you're going to get together, they're like, hey, can't wait to see you in Brooklyn at our favorite spot. Of course, they live in Brooklyn and you live in Queens. You're like, why why always got to get on the train to go to Brooklyn? Why? 
instead of saying that, you could say, I'd really appreciate it if you could, um, if we could decide together where we're going to meet. And I would love it if you would come to Queens. Rather than just staying, you know, we fall into a, a pattern of behavior, even if it's unsatisfying. And then even though we love that friend and we want to see them, why not negotiate for your preference? And literally saying, I would appreciate it if we could decide together where we're going to eat, or let's do something new, or I would love it if you would come to Queens, instead of just letting it go. Um, you can be more, depending on the relationship with the interrupter, you can be more, um, you can go a little further. Like, um, I thought sh I thought you should know when you interrupt my story, it makes me feel unimportant or makes me feel like you're not listening and that hurts my feelings. Now, I would say that to someone I was close to and maybe not someone who wasn't because it wouldn't hurt my feelings <laughs> if I wasn't close to them. Um, what other situations do you want to know about? Well, well, one thing, just as a comment before we go on to other situations, is that when you describe this language, I notice there's not a lot of charge on what you're saying. Like, so mm -hmm. uh, truth be told, I'm an interrupter. And as you were just holding up your finger, hold on, let me just, I thought, oh, that's easy. And even hurts my feelings. Well, that was a little more intense, but I was still okay with it. But I know sometimes when people, you know, they're like, stop interrupting me. You know, <laughs> I can't stand it. And it's like the whole thing is blown up. And so I, I, I wonder just uh, how do we make sure we're in a place where we're not making the situation worse or, or creating a whole blow up as we're communicating our reasonable boundaries. By the time you get to the scripts in this book, you will have gone through this whole process of deactivating these wounds, these experiences, because a lot of times when someone blows up like you just described, I promise you, it is not because you interrupted their story about Cancun, because that is a very hot, reaction and response. That is, in my estimation, most likely, what is called a transference. And so you learn to look at yourself and go, ah, oh, did I, was I more, was my response amplified? Because this is, uh, is a familiar experience to me, because I grew up with a sister, let's say, who always interrupted me and then never listened ever. And I was the one who nobody listened to, let's say. Maybe that's your story. So maybe that person who yells, I can't stand it when you interrupt, is because they haven't gone into the basement of their unconscious mind to mine for this important information. We deactivate so much stuff throughout the book because we go, oh, well, that makes total sense now of why it would make me crazy when people interrupt me. But now is not then. And my coworker is not my sister. So I don't need to. I will still assert myself, but I don't need to explode. So part of this process is, you know, we, we learn to not react because we create space within us. Because what you're describing is a reaction. Okay. How about some simple examples of how to be skillful when I just need to decline and say no? Maybe someone's inviting me to something socially. Maybe it's professional. Who knows? But I really just am not interested flat out. But how do I do it in a graceful way? Well, there's two. I'm, I'm going to give you two ways. We'll give you a couple for each, like stem, uh, sentence stems for each. If you're someone who is very difficult for you to say no, that then my advice is that you buy time. So what we really want for those people who are sort of the, the auto yes people, you're just gonna stop that. So how to stop the auto yes is, um, let me get back to you on that. I need some time to think about that. Um, I need to check with my roommate, my partner, my lover, whomever you need to check with. Um, the, you know, there's another one that I, I used to give my clients to say. And it's funny, some people would be like, oh my God, I could never say that. Other people are like, I love that so much. Um, hey, let me get back to you. I've instituted a 24-hour decision-making policy, so I'll be back to you tomorrow. Like, I'm just giving myself a day to decide. So th that's really for the people where you are more prone to the insta yes we just want you to stop that 
because then the no will be so much easier and it will be truthful, right? We're really valuing the truth. We're valuing how you feel in this. If you're less threatened and you feel like in the moment, like you can have these in your hip pocket too, to say, oh, I'm afraid I can't. They ask you to do something with no explanation. Because here's another really, really important thing. If saying no is hard, a lot of times it feels like you need to have a good enough reason to say no. Feels like you got to like mm, write a dissertation. You got to like make a make a case for your no. Here's the thing: you really don't. You you really don't. And the more that really sinks in, that just not wanting to do something is completely legitimate, even if the other person wants you to. And if it's a friend and you choose to mindfully do it because you love them, that's a mindful choice and that's fine. But get that someone else's reality, their desire, their preference should absolutely not supersede your own. The point is you have the right to say no. If you mindfully choose to say yes, even if you don't want to, but it has to be a choice. And that's what this entire process is about. Other easy ways to say no in the moment, because we were going to give a couple of STEM starters, um, is to tell the truth. Someone asked me to go see loud music anywhere. I literally don't want to. I'm sensitive. I don't want to. I just say, hey, I'm not really into that type of music or that food or outdoor events or bugs or grass or sun or whatever it is, but I hope you have a wonderful time. Like you can literally just say, it's like not my thing. And you're still my thing, right? <laughs> like no to dinner with your horrible in-laws and you say, I'm still a yes to you, my friend, Betty. You know, like there's kind of a funny way to do it. You can also just say, you know, I'd actually rather not. Where I give a little more context so let's say with someone who is a friend and they say, can you do this? I say, you know, I'd really rather not. I'm actually really tired. I want to get a good night's sleep tonight. So that to me, I'm not convincing them. I'm giving context because I care about them. And those are two different things. You don't always need to do that. A no to someone who you really don't care about. You don't, you are not required to give any context. And we have all, we all have this fear, it seems, at least my clients do it in my groups, of like being perceived as being rude. But there's a way to also do this where I always say, thank you for thinking of me, but I'd rather not. Thank you for thinking of me, but I'm already committed on that date. I, I super, I start a lot of my no's with folks I care about, with saying, I really appreciate you thinking of me, it really makes me, you know, I, I appreciate you basically. And then, but I need to decline or I'm already engaged on that, that day or whatever it is. And I think that the shift in your mindset, that when you get to the point where you go, I really do have the right to be self-determined and that my no just has to make sense to me. And someone else being like, that doesn't make sense. I don't even get it. I'm always like, when it was amazing, you don't have to get it, but you do have to respect it. You literally do not have to get it, other person, <laughs> but that doesn't make it not valid. So I think in this process of in close relationships, wanting to give context sometimes is because I want to be more intimately understood by the people that I love. And I don't feel compelled to do that with people who I work with or like my mail carrier or whomever, you know what I mean? That's not necessary. You know, early in our conversation, you gave the example when it comes to boundaries of someone who feels underpaid. Uh, it's not getting paid uh, what mm -hmm. they feel they deserve. How might that person, whether it's talking to themselves or talking to other people, their clients, how, what kind of scripts would you help them with? Listen, if you feel like you're being underpaid, it's really your boss or the person who has control over paying you that you want to figure out how to, right? Because this isn't something that you want to be telling anyone else about. Um, you have the conversation, which is most places have an annual overview, but if it's a small place and they don't, you can say, hey, I would love to. This last year has been a big year and I would love to sit down when you have a minute and talk about what's coming up for the next 12 months. Like you can arrange to sort of do your own review by getting on the calendar. And then 
it isn't just language here. It's you actually have to, data-wise, build a case for what you've done for the company. How much money did you make them with the things that you did and then whatever it is. Um, but I can't tell you how many of my clients would just go years. The company doesn't do it and they just don't. They just work for the same salary for 10 years. And I'm like, but why? You have a right. Well, I, they don't have money. I, well, that's not your side of the street. Trust me, I used to negotiate contracts for a living. You'd be shocked at how money can be found when you're at a take it or leave it, you know? But again, that's a, that's a, a, a mental and, a, and even emotional boundary, a disordered boundary, because what they can or can't afford does not change what you're worth. So you can still ask for it. Let them say, hey, it's a, it's a hard time for the company, but have the conversation. The first thing is to set up, set up a meeting and sort of move into it from there. But you, of course, that's the type of thing you have to be, um, you have to be prepared with your data to say, um, I've been at this rate for the last 12 months and um, I believe that I am due for an increase. Okay, let's say someone's listening to our conversation and they're mm -hmm. identifying, you know, there's this area where I feel some resentment. I do in this relationship, in this situation. And I'm mm -hmm. not going to get the, the bugle horn out, like Terry said, don't, you know, now it's my time. But uh, I, I do <laughs> want to work through this and free myself from it as more of a boundary boss human. What would you suggest? They've identified this area of resentment. Well, real clarity on what it is they're resentful about is, is the beginning. So let's you're saying they have this. There's clarity. You said you would do this thing. I'm going to make up a situation because it's easier to do it. So you said you would come with me to this thing, and then you, you, you bailed on the last minute. Then you have to decide. This is clearly sticking in your side, right? Sticking in your craw. So you want to have a conversation. And you can say, Hey, you know, I was thinking about last weekend and I wanted to bring it to your attention that I was really bummed out that you canceled at the last minute. And then now I find myself feeling resentful. So I really want to talk about it. So that's one. Um, the, the intro to this is like, I wanted to, I want to bring this to your attention because I don't want it to be between us. And I can tell that I, I've copped negative feelings about it. I should have said something at the time. I didn't, but I would love to talk about it now. I would like to make a simple request that when you commit to doing something with me, that you keep your word. I mean, unless it's an extreme situation, which of course I can understand, but I would just like to make the simple request that if you say you're going to do it, that you do what you say you're going to do. Well, I'll tell you what I'm reflecting on during this conversation, Terry. Feels to me like being a boundary boss, sort of the ultimate human developmental achievement when it comes to being connected to other people in a healthy and truthful way. It seems like such a big deal. And that sometimes like when you think about having healthy boundaries, it's, it's considered more like, a, like some psychological skill over there. And then there's enlightenment or self-mastery or these other, like they're the real, you know, holy grail, the real achievement. But in hearing you describe the way a real boundary boss operates in the world, I'm, I'm thinking like, oh, that's actually the apex in some way of human development. And I'm curious what you think about that. That's very beautifully said and absolutely true. Because if you do not master the way you are in your relationships and in the world in this way, how can we ever have this, even, even enlightenment, right? It, it's like a notion. I don't even know what that even means personally, just because I'm so grounded in this. But it's like, this is you becoming masterful at yourself and then interacting in the world as your highest self in a real way, your most developed self. It also stops you from colluding with the lowest instinct in others. When we have good boundaries and someone is doing something that is really a deal breaker for us, instead of staying in that situation, we 
there is a consequence. We step back. We know how to interact in difficult relationships and protect ourselves. But keep in mind, you're also protecting the other from their lowest, right? We stop colluding with their lowest. So there's really something. Uh, yes, I'm just going to say, I fully agree with what you said, Tam. <laughs> Are there aspects of being a boundary boss that you still find challenging? And if so, where does it come up for you? In what kinds of situations does it come up for you? Yes. Yes. And it's so funny that I, I always teach this, like, just because you know how to do it doesn't mean you're ever going to love the things you used to wholeheartedly avoid, right? I still do not love a, a, a confrontation. I don't love disappointing the people that I love. Sometimes I must, because I must choose. <laughs> I must choose what I need to do. But I will never love that, but I won't avoid it. So for me, it's, it really is about a hot or angry conversation, because I don't, I don't do a lot of anger in my life, um, or disappointing people. Never going to love it, even if it's my right, quote unquote, to say no. There will still be times when I feel a little bit of a boundary hangover, because I really would like to make that person happy. And yet I know if I do it at the expense of my own happiness, ultimately we will all be unhappy. Mm -hmm. So again, because I think the, the actual examples are so helpful, can you give me an example of when you felt, I'm going to be disappointing somebody here, but I have to do it and I'm going to do it in a gracious way? Yeah, spending time with my mom is one while I was writing a book. And while, I mean, she lived here for four months because she was going through treatment for cancer while I was writing the book. And then once she went home, I was going three or four times a week. And then it got crunch time with the book and I just couldn't. Now I have other sisters, but that was difficult. And I had to say, mom, I have to do this. And she was like, babe, I under, of course you do. I understand. It wasn't her reaction. That was the thing that was going to make me feel guilty. It was like my need to be the hero child that made me feel guilty. You know, she was like, obviously it's okay. But that was still hard for me to choose my book deadline, keep my word to what I said I would do when my mom was in a physically vulnerable place, even though I knew other people were taking care of her. Mm -hmm. All right. This is your big book, Boundary Boss. How does it feel that it's finally now out in the world? Oh, so hard to describe. I've got lots of mixed emotions, mostly great, relieved, excited, very vulnerable, for sure. You know, I, I had a conversation with Vic, my husband, like months and months ago before before we were we were, you know, now it's out, but before we were this close. And I was like, oh my God. He was like, what? I was like, people are going to read this book. He was like, yeah, babe, isn't that the point of writing? But I'm not kidding. Like I had one moment where I was like, I wrote about my family. I wrote about my life. I told the truth. And I was like, okay, but are you ashamed of any of that? The answer was no. But I just felt very like, wow, these are things that usually people who are either just in my practice or whatever would know about. So that was kind of funny. But the the overwhelming reception that I've had has been so beautiful and um, very affirming of what I prayed, what I prayed, let this reach everyone who needs less suffering, more joy, more skills, like just as many people as possible so to be legitimately empowered in their life. That's what the book is about. And if you do it, that's what it creates. And uh, a last question here is just about the subtitle. The Essential Guide hmm. to Talk True. I think we've uh, we've covered that really well. Be mm -hmm. seen. Clearly, uh, we're seeing you, as you uh, describe in the book. And we're also mm -hmm. letting other people see us in our truth. And then this last part, finally live free. How does becoming good at being a boundary boss let us feel like we can be free? Well, you are free to be your most authentic self if you're not spending all of your bandwidth pleasing others 
or hiding parts of yourself that you feel ashamed of. The, the self, the process, the self-evolution that we go through in the book, where in the end you are madly, deeply in love with yourself, and that is liberating. We're accepting the, the light and the shadow. Right? We don't need to be, quote-unquote, good girls anymore. We just need to be good, right? But not good girls, not good for someone else, good for ourselves, our partners, our families, our businesses. And that is liberation. When you are less worried about what other people think about you and more dialed into what you're passionate about, what is your dharma? What is your purpose in life? You can't do that when you spend all of this bandwidth worrying about what Bob in accounting is thinking about you, you know? We've been speaking with Terry Cole. She's the author of a brilliant and comprehensive book, a book that will take you on a real journey to becoming a boundary boss. Boundary Boss, the essential guide to talk true, be seen, and finally live free. You can learn more at boundarybossbook.com or come visit us at Sounds True. Terry, thank you so much. The work you're doing is brave, beautiful, and practical and helpful. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Tim. Thank you for listening to Insights at the Edge. You can read a full transcript of today's interview at soundstrue.com forward slash podcast. And if you're interested, hit the subscribe button in your podcast app. And also, if you feel inspired, head to iTunes and leave Insights at the Edge a review. I love getting your feedback, being in connection with you, and learning how we can continue to evolve and improve our program. Working together, I believe, we can create a kinder and wiser world. Soundstrue.com, waking up the world.